0: Hey, good morning. Uh, I'm Kotz, one of the pastors here, and we are in part, I lost count, I think part five or six of the series called Center State Church. We've been looking at scripture and tradition and church history to see, you know, what is the church supposed to look like? What is the church that Jesus intended to start? And um, here's a quick recap of what we've been talking about because uh, we're like halfway through the series. But a lot of the things that we think about when we think about church in terms of the system and the way that we operate this nonprofit organization, turns out there isn't much about it in the Bible except for like negative mentions of it. So we, changed, we decided to call that description the temple model. Here's a quick description of the temple model. It's a sacred place because in the, in the temple model, it's always about location, right? Uh, when we call church as a building or a location, we're participating in the temple model. It's a sacred place where sacred men, and it's usually men, right, interpret sacred texts. They're the only ones that are allowed to interpret the text, which draw sacred lines to determine who is in and who is out. This is a temple model. And if you've ever come to church and you're like in a situation when you realize like, well, you know, the pastor goes up there and says that all are welcome, but I get the sense that not everybody is really welcome. Right, I get the sense that that you know because of like a past mistake I made, uh, maybe I don't belong here. Even though they say that I belong here, I don't feel like I belong here. You know, maybe it's like a like an abortion or a divorce or a mistake or maybe your sexuality or whatever it may be. You show up and you realize, you know, I I feel like I'm being judged here, right? And that's because we've drawn these lines and you know, sometimes it's well defined, sometimes it's not, but you get the sense that like, I, I think I don't really, uh, maybe I'm not really welcome here, right? And so this is what makes church unnecessarily unattractive. And so we contrasted this with the Jesus model. This is what the Jesus model is. It's an open invitation, right? Whoever wants to be a part of it gets to be a part of it. It's an open, open invitation from God to all humanity, not specific groups of people, but anybody who's interested. To participate in a community, it's not a building, church is a community that is based on the single command, not the 600 plus, 500, 600 plus rules in the Old Testament, but the single command, which is to love others. This is what Jesus set out to start. And over the past 2,000 years, this has changed. And, it has, uh, and as it changed, and we talked about church history a few weeks ago, you can check out that sermon, it's online. But as the church started to gain more and more power and influence in society, they wanted to keep that power. And because of that, they started drawing lines. If there was anybody that became like a threat to the organization, they said, nope, we're gonna draw a line right there. You can't cross this line unless you conform to our ways. And that became normalized. And the Christianity that was passed on to us is the temple model, and what we're trying to do is we're trying to reclaim the Jesus model. And this is great, because you get background music as I'm getting to my point. Maybe at the climax of the sermon, you could... You could... <laughs> You're totally cool, Bill. You're totally cool. <laughs> so we, we, we took all this, all this stuff... And we narrowed it down to two different types of questions that define each of these models. The temple model is basically says, what does the Bible say? Now, if this is your first time with us, you're like, wait a minute. Is this church like deviating away from the Bible? Is that what you're, no, 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 no. We're talking about how the Bible ought to be used. We value the Bible. We preach from the Bible every week. And I think we should all study the Bible. But when you say, if you're about to do something and the first question that comes to mind is, well, what does the Bible say about that? That is a temple model right? Is there a commandment for that. And you know what? The temple model worked for the first half of the Bible. The Old Testament is all about temple model. For example, if you're thinking, should I honor my parents or not honor my parents? You're like, well, isn't there a verse about that? Right? Should I murder somebody or should I not? I'm pretty sure there's a rule about that in the Old Testament, right? These are things that we can all agree on, but eventually you start going into things like, well, should I get a tattoo or not? And then you're like, oh, is there a verse about that? And there is a verse about that in the Old Testament, but you don't know the context of that verse anymore. Another thing is, like, should I get tacos for lunch today or not? Is there a verse for that? Like, should I, you know, should I pull, pull like, like cyberbullying? Should I participate in it or should I not? Is there a verse in the Bible about cyberbullying? Right? And you start realizing that there are limitations to the question, what does the Bible say? The new model, the model that Jesus introduced to us 2,000 years ago, is quite different. The question we should be asking is this, what does love require of me? If I'm commanded to love others in the way that Christ has loved me, that answers a lot of the questions that the old model doesn't answer. Should I participate in cyberbullying? Well, if I'm willing to love my neighbor, the answer is no. Instead of asking, oh, is there a verse about honoring my parents? You ask yourself, what does love require of me? Oh, I should honor my parents. You don't do the things that you're supposed to do because there's a verse about it. You do it because that's what love requires of you, and that's the Jesus model, right? And so two weeks ago, we talked about how, next slide, here we go, the Jesus model is less complicated. You don't have to memorize one concept, which is, what does love require of me? It's a lot simpler. Like, God, so I don't have to memorize all the laws in the Old Testament. It's like, no, you just have to remember one thing, which is, all right. like, love others in the way that Christ has loved me. It's a lot less complicated, but we also talked about how it is far more demanding. There's no loopholes. In the temple model, you could say, well, there's a verse about it, but technically in the original Hebrew, maybe this is what it really meant for that specific generation, but today it means something completely different, right? There's loopholes. You could say, well, maybe that's not what the verse really says. There's no way around the command of loving others as Christ has loved us. There's no way out of it. You can't wiggle your way out of it. And it's more demanding because it costs more. Because love requires us to be patient with one another. There's no shortcut in loving other people. There's no efficiency in loving other people. It costs you resources because love requires you to be generous. Even when somebody doesn't deserve something, you give them stuff because that's what love requires. Jesus, when he's demonstrating this very principle, it cost him his life. And this is the Jesus model. It's less complicated, but it's far more demanding. It's basically God saying, now you have no excuse. Go and talk to the people who are your enemies. Make things right with them. Yeah, it's going to cost you a lot. So for the past few weeks, we've been talking about this concept. This concept we like to call theology, and this idea of theology is what informs our application. So for the past few weeks, you're like, just, cause, just tell us what to do. Just tell us what we're supposed to do. And I'm like, sorry, we're still talking about theology because what we believe about God, what we believe about Jesus, is eventually gonna inform how we behave, right? So our belief is that God is love. God requires us to love. The ultimate act of God is to live on humanity sacrificially. Right, And because that's who God is, how should we treat the people around us? Are we supposed to manipulate people to do the things, behave the way that we want them to behave? Or are we just supposed to love on them and give, show them patience and love and you know, all those sort of things, right? So this week, up until this week, we've been talking about the theology. Starting next week, we're gonna start talking about the application. What does a church look like if we were to put this into practice, right? Today, we're gonna be talking about this transition this transition, meaning what are we supposed to take from here and bring into the application? And so today I've brought you four application points, okay? And these four application points that we're gonna bring into to the, to the practical side of it, um, it, basically what I'm trying to do here is this, next slide. We're going to replace our temple-rooted assumptions with Jesus-model truth. This is what we're doing today. This is what I mean. Even if you've never been to church before, if you visit a church today, you're gonna to have assumptions that's built into your psyche, right, you're gonna be like, okay, this is church, I'm supposed to behave a certain way, right? And you're expecting other people, I'm at church, you're supposed to behave this way, like you have these like, assumptions that's built into who you are, even if you've never been to church before, you just assume these assumptions. What we're gonna do is we're gonna address four assumptions that we're not supposed to uh, buy into, and why that's important. So, I have four of them, Let's start with the first one. Number one is this. The church is a body. It is not a kingdom. Now, you might be like, wait a minute, didn't Jesus call the church his whole thing a kingdom? Yes, he did. But the word kingdom is a metaphor. Jesus is like, well, if I could think of a word that describes um, you know, the movement I'm in, I'm gonna call it a kingdom. And the, the metaphor does not, it doesn't cover all the bases, okay? So if I'm losing you, I'll try to get you back. Okay, so when we say kingdom, And when Jesus says kingdom, they may not mean the same thing, okay? When we say kingdom, when the world says kingdom, we often think about the word empire. Because a kingdom conquers. A kingdom lords over other people. When Jesus uses the word kingdom, he's not talking about those things. The kingdom we think about when we say the word kingdom is often associated with the word empire, okay? So I'm gonna set up a scene, I'm gonna show you a few verses here. There's a guy named Pontius Pilate. He is like the king of that area, okay? So the king of humanity right there in this story. Jesus is arrested. He's the king of the Jews. He's the king of humanity. He's the king of kings, okay? They're face to face. Jesus is arrested. He's standing before Pontius Pilate and Pontius Pilate asks him a question. Hey, I heard you're a king. And let me tell me more about this kingdom that you're in charge of. Jesus' response. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. Pontius Pilate, when you say kingdom and when I say kingdom, we don't mean the same thing. When you say kingdom, you think about conquering, about power. When you say kingdom, you're thinking about oppression for the sake of your comfortable life, maintaining order by by bringing fear instilling fear into other people. That's what you think of when you say kingdom. Not so with me. No, no, no. You see, my kingdom is not like the kingdom that you think of when you say the word kingdom. He continues, if it were, if my version of kingdom is the way that you think of kingdom, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. If I were to buy into your definition of kingdom, then when they arrested me, my guys would have surrounded me and killed all your people to keep me safe. That's your understanding of kingdom, right? Like Pontius Pilate, if somebody were to come and arrest you, your guards will stand between you know, the, the, the people who are arresting you and me, and, and like they would st- form a human barrier and fight them off, right? That's not what I mean by when I say the word kingdom, Jesus would say. What do you mean by kingdom, Jesus? Well, he says this, but now my kingdom is from another place. My version of kingdom, and he's like, this is when like Jesus realizes and we realize that the word kingdom. Is a good metaphor at one point, but at one, another point, it's like not a good metaphor, right? So he says, like maybe kingdom isn't the right word because when I say kingdom, you think something else, right? You think of empire, and quite frankly, today in churches around the world, mostly in Western United, the Western parts of the world, um, when we think about the kingdom of God, we use that as an excuse. Like we need to grow the church, double the size. We need to buy a big building and we need to do this. We need people to give more money to the church and we gotta do all these things. Why? Well, because we need to grow the kingdom. We use kingdom in a way that benefits the church and that's not how the word kingdom was meant to be used. We need to, you know, like we need to do a, a, a bait and switch thing where we say, hey, we're gonna have a family film and I want you to come over to our church. Boom, ha it was a trick. I'm here to convert all you guys, right? Like we do it all in the name of kingdom. And Jesus says, that's not what I mean by when I say the word kingdom. So in the, New, in the New, New Testament, when the church started, I don't know if you noticed this, if you read on and on into the New, um, into the New Testament text, we eventually get to these set of letters that this guy named Paul, one of the first Christian leaders wrote. And he doesn't use the word kingdom that much. But do you know what word he does use to describe the, the movement of God? He uses the word body. A body... Is the church as a, as a representation of Jesus? He's like, you know what a better metaphor is? Body. A church should be a body, a representation. So if I were to look at the church, I would not think there's a kingdom, there's something that's starting to grow and they're gonna take over and they have guards and, they, you know, I, like, you no, know, when I think about church, I think about body. Like, a body has arms, legs, feet, you know, and together you become a representation of who God is. Right, this is what Paul the Apostle says about this. He says this, this is 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Now you are the body of Christ. He's talking to the church. You guys, you guys are the body of Christ and each one of you is a part of it. Everybody here is a part of the body of Christ, right? Collectively, you are the body of Christ. And God has placed it in the church first of all and he starts listing the different parts of the body of Christ, apostles, prophets, teachers. Next slide people who do miracles, healing, helping, giving guidance, tongues, people who, like, you know, like, you speak multiple languages, tongues, right? And what he's saying here is this. Jesus healed people. So in the body of Christ, there should be somebody who heals people. Maybe there's a doctor. Maybe there's somebody who knows how to make great chicken noodle soup for people who are sick, right? Body of Christ. Somebody who gives guidance. Oh, I'm totally lost in my life. And somebody's like, hey, let me help you. Let me get your act together and we'll help you, guide you in your life. Right? There's somebody here that, you know, that needs sound teaching. So there needs to be teachers in the body of Christ. All of you put together, you become a representation of Jesus. It's like, that's a better metaphor for what a church ought to be. And here's, there's, there's a lot of implications to this. And you probably heard a lot of preachers talk about this. And I just want to highlight one of them. Paul here is implying that each person in the body matters. Right? If you come to church and you're like, "Ah, oh, you know, I'm just going to, you know, I'm not going to, I just whatever, you know, right? No one knows about me, no one cares about me." No, you matter. We might not know you or we might, you know, we might just be getting to know you, but wherever you are in that spectrum, you matter. And Paul is also saying, right? And this is an interesting implication here. If you aren't engaged in a local community or a church, you are missing out on the body of Christ. The reverse is also true. If you are not engaged in your local church, then the church is also missing out. Now, if church is all about you know, coming to service and watching or listening to a preacher preach and listening to music or singing along with the team, if that's what church is all to you, then it's all about consumption. It's all about consumption. And guess what? You could do that from home. You could do that online. When you think, you now I understand there's some people who can't make disservice, and that's why we have our online platform. But if you have the, the 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 power and the strength and the opportunity to be there physically, it's really important that you do because by engaging in the community, you are gaining something, and the people around you are also gaining something. Because the temple model, the temple model is all about consumption. It's all about consumption it's all about, well, I'm gonna go to service today because I just might get something out of it today. There's good info that the preacher preaches. Or maybe it's like, I feel good about myself. When I go to Sunday's service, I just feel good about, who, like, I just feel better inside. Or, you know, I've heard a lot of people say, like, hey, I go to church because, you know, I, I switch churches because I feel more fed. You know, I feel more edified, or, right? Like, it's all about me. And so, you know what, because you could do all that from home. But the reason why we need to be here present you know, physically is because in the Jesus model, it's all about engagement. Engagement. When you come to service, by the way, the, the preaching and the music, that's a small part of what church really is about. When you come to service, church, you know, in person, you can ask yourself these questions like, what can I do for other people? Maybe today I can meet somebody's need. Maybe I could help somebody today. Maybe I'll have a meaningful conversation that could change somebody's life. Maybe I could give somebody a hug, somebody that desperately needs physical touch because that person's been you know, isolated from the rest of the world. I don't know what your circumstance might be. Church is about community, not about the sermon, not about the music, it's about people. Okay, so that's the first one. Number two, authority of the church is for the benefit of the led, not the leader. In the Old Testament, the priests—it's really interesting if you do a little study of like where the priest starts in the Book of Exodus and how they end up in the New Testament. The priest was never meant to hold power, but when you read about the priests, like there's even like the high priest, right? When you read about the priests in New Testament, they have like a lot of power over society. Like they could make judgments on people, and the whole town will follow the judgment of that priest, right? Um, priests had a lot of power and usually served themselves really well, right? And what Jesus says is that, you know what, I came here to flip that whole thing upside down. And as a matter of fact, I, Jesus would say, I, who the king of the Jews, I'm here to die for you. And they're like, we've never heard of a king who's willing to lay his life down for the people who don't deserve it, right? He's like, well, this is what this movement's all about, right? So here's a story from the Bible about that. Now, here's the scene. Jesus has 12 disciples, and the 12, two of them are brothers. And one day, their mom shows up. Right, because you know, moms love their kids, and they're like, Hey, Jesus, I have a a favor to ask of you. This is that story. Here we go. The mother of Zebedee's sons, which are James and John, uh, came to Jesus with her sons and, kneeling down, asked a favor of them What is it you want? He asked. Like, Jesus, like, okay, you're kneeling, this is awkward. Uh, I'm afraid to ask, What do you want, lady? She said, Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. Jesus, I understand that you're doing this kingdom thing. Of course, she's already thinking about a different kind of kingdom, right? I understand, Jesus, that you are the son of God, so you are going to be at the top, right? But I understand there's also these, like, open slots on, the, on your right and your left. I have two sons. So you have two open slots. Can they sit at those seats, right? We want, like, I want my kids to be at a place of power. Why? Because with power comes privilege, and benefits, and luxury, and respect—you know, all the good stuff, right? And Jesus is like, "Oh, great! No, this whole kingdom imagery is not really working out because she thinks that this is all about ranking. So, uh, how should I? Mm, how do I respond to this? Jesus' answer: You don't know what you are asking." Like I don't think we're like um, I don't think we're seeing things eye to eye here. I, I don't think you understand what I mean by one of those when I say kingdom. Jesus said to them, "Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink?" He likened his suffering as something he has to drink. Okay, it's like, do you understand that if you're going to be a place of power in my kingdom, in my body, in my movement, it actually comes with suffering and humiliation and pain. And without thinking, the mom is like, "Yeah, of course they can. <laughs> you know, my boys are tough." okay, so this causes some kind of a response from the other 10 disciples. When the 10 heard about this, they were indignant. They were annoyed. They were furious. They were angered with the two brothers. Like, wait, wait, wait. I didn't know that we could apply for those positions. We want to be at those top positions. Can, like, Jesus, can we, like, can we push them out of the way and put us in those positions? So Jesus is like, okay, guys, timeout. 22nd TO. We need to make sure that you guys have we all understand that we're on the same page here. Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles and the word Gentile here, the way that Jesus is using it here is basically people who don't know God. People who don't know God lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. People who don't know God, people who don't have that relationship with God, people who have no knowledge of who God is, they're the ones that are saying, hey, I wanna have a high place in society because then I have slaves and servants all around me. It's like, are you sure you wanna be like that? Because that's not what I'm about. My kingdom is not about how many people could serve me. My kingdom is all about how we could serve others. Like, I don't think you know what you're asking for when you say that you want the high spots, the high places of, of, of the kingdom. So Jesus responds. He says, not so with you. The people who don't know God, they might be striving for these high places where people will respect them. Well, they'll have a lot of money, It's like, not so with you, man. And today he would say, not so with you, church. Your role is not to be the powerful organization in society. But if you do want to have that power, then it comes with a lot of responsibility. With great power comes great, that's a great line. With great power comes great responsibility, right? So he said, instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. In the original language, in the Greek, the word servant implies courier, like a person who does the dirty work. Like, if you want to be great, get your hands dirty. And, in case you missed that point, whoever wants to be first must be your slave. You have to lower yourself and wash people's feet. He's like, in the temple maybe, maybe that was what you should, you know, like, like like servants, you know that what you're aiming for is not the way that I'm gonna operate the kingdom. The more power you have, the more influence you have, the more money you have, much more is required of you. Are you ready for that? And the you know these, these 12 disciples are like, wait, 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 Jesus, so, so you're saying that we shouldn't have the high place because it makes us suffer? Like, what, what are you saying here? Is there a verse about it, Jesus? Like, tell us a verse. Like, is there a verse that says this? And Jesus is like, oh, you don't understand anything I've been teaching you for the past three years. Okay. The reason you should do this is not because the Bible tells you to, because that's a temple model. The reason you should do this is because you are my followers and because I'm about to do the greatest act of love with the greatest amount of power, which is to sacrifice myself. This is what he says. It's like, just as the Son of Man, he's referring to himself, just as I did not come to be served, but to to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. I am the most powerful being in all the universe, and you know what I'm going to do with all that power? I'm going to lay it down for the people so that they have what it takes to get through life. God gives you power, riches, not so that it could serve yourself, but so that it could serve other people. And if you are going towards let's be the most powerful church, let's be the most powerful in you know, a political party or let's let's be the richest person on the block or whatever, He's like, you missed the point. That's not what church is all about. Yeah. So the temple model, use power for yourself. There's benefits to power, and with those benefits, you serve yourself. I want to be the king so that I could lay down on a nice cushion, like pillow, and then we have servants with the big leaves and feathers that cool me down in those hot days, and they put grapes in my mouth. That's what I think about when I think about you know, what I want in my life. And Jesus says, not so with you. Jesus' model says, you leverage the power you have for the sake of others. Imagine if every Christian followed this principle, just this one principle here. If you're a business owner, imagine if you leverage the influence and power you have for the sake of your employees. Your employees will probably be like, you know what, I don't know if I believe in this Jesus thing. I don't know about the whole resurrection thing, but you know what, I do want to work for a Christian because they know how to take care of people. They take care of their employees. They think about the employees first before he thinks about how much money he or she's going to make. Imagine if we apply, apply this principle to marriages. Instead of saying, I'm the man of the house, so women, you are going to serve me, right? Instead of that, you're like, no, no, no. My role as a Christian in this family is to submit to the other person, and the other person says, my role is to submit to you, and then you have this loving of one another, and Jesus says, that's what a family's supposed to look like. By the way, this shook up society. Um, in the first century, uh, there was a lot of people who owned slaves, and some of those slave owners became Christians. Right? If you read the book of Philemon, which is like later in the Bible, in the book of Philemon, there's a guy named Philemon who became a Christian and he owned a slave, and his slave ran away. Paul the apostle finds the slave, his name is Onesimus, and he's like, he writes a letter to Philemon saying, hey, um, I'm sending your slave back to you, but remember, you're a Christian. You are a follower of Christ. So don't receive him back as a slave, because you have all this power. Receive him back as a brother, it changed the landscape of how people treated other people. It changed the economy, it changed everything. All right, number three. Godliness is determined by how well one loves, not how religious one is. If you were to create a grading scale of who is the godliest person in church, right? Um, you might say, well, look at you know, the pastor, he must be really godly or she must be really godly because they have these gifts, like he could preach, he knows the Bible, right? No, 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 no. That's the old temple model. In the Jesus model, if there's a grading scale, your godliness is measured by how well you love other people. In the Old Testament, it was all about how many commands can you keep? How much can you not sin? In the New Testament, in the new model, it's about how well can you love? How dirty can your hands get in serving somebody? So, in the book of Galatians, There's a church who used to be influenced heavily by the Jewish model, which is the temple model, and they're like, so how do we measure how close we are to God to godliness how do we know where we are on the spectrum of you know are we close to God or are we not close to God because back then they had rules they had the commands to determine who was close enough like did you sin how many times oh I only sinned five times you 10 times Oh, I'm godlier than you right that's how they did it back then but in the new church they're like we don't know how to measure this anymore so they came up with a phrase called the fruit of the spirit you probably heard of this fruit of the spirit it says if you are loving one another in the way that you're supposed to love one another, you'll start to see these, ben- these, these, these fruits develop in your life. And that is how you measure how, somebody, how godly somebody, somebody is. But in the temple model, it's not based off of like how well you love, it's based on merit. So I'll give you an example. If this verse was written to the temple model, this is what it would sound like. The fruit of spirit is insight, knowledge, a grasp of, of the more profound things, a seminary degree, chiching. ching Mysterious prayers, how one quotes the Bible in Hebrew. Fruit of the Spirit, y'all, right here, right? No, that's not what Paul said. If you don't know the Bible, this is not from the Bible. I just made that up. Okay, what it really says is this. The fruit of the Spirit is, first of all, love, joy, peace, forbearance, which is patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now, if you look at all this, you'll discover that these there's a list of nine here. These nine things are mostly horizontal actions. It's how you treat other people. How much can you show patience to other people? How much gentleness? How much self-control can you have towards other people? These are all external things, right? They're all sacrificial things. These are all cross-cultural things. And most importantly, these are most, mostly unnatural things. These are not things that just develop in your life without working on it. These are only things that, have, that develop with the Holy Spirit working through you. All right, so if we were to summarize this part, temple model, become religious. This is how everybody knows you're godly, right? Pray in a way that demonstrates to everybody around you that you are a godly person. Quote scripture when you can, you know. um, Brag about how many people you brought to church. That's the temple model. The Jesus model how well you love. If there's a grading scale, your godliness is determined by how well you love other people. Huge implications to this, by the way. The most Christ like person you might know may not know the Bible because it's not about how well you know the Bible anymore. And like I said, Bible's very important. I'll preach out of it every Sunday. But in terms of godliness goes. Godliness is all about how well you love, not how well you know the Bible, not how many times you come to church in a year, not how much you give to the church every year. It's determined by how well you love, how well you're generous towards the people around you, how many enemies you love on. That also implies that your pastor may not be the most godly person in this room. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. (laughs) I'm a human being. Okay, so, okay, number four. (laughs) Okay, number four. Church is about being a part of something rather than setting us apart from something. I know, play on words. Apart, a part, and apart. In the Old Testament, in the temple model, it was all about having pure hands, right? We don't want to mix with certain groups of people Ethnically, because you know, mixing with other groups is like a big no-no, it makes us impure, right? Um, ritualistically, culturally, we try to stay away from people who disagree with us, people who don't look like us. But then in the New Testament, in the new movement, in Jesus' kingdom, or the body, he starts saying some things that, that are counter to what was taught in the Old Testament, which is, yeah, you need to mix with other people. There's a story about a guy named Peter, his whole life he was raised in the temple system. Jesus tells him, you need to go and interact with these people who are not like you. And after Jesus dies and rises again, he does not visit anybody who is not a Jew for a long time. But one day he has this weird dream. It's like uh, like pigs and blankets and stuff like that. You know what I'm talking about if you know what I'm talking about, okay, okay. But he takes it as a sign that he's supposed to go to a Gentile's house and share a meal with him, which is like the biggest deal back then, right? And so Peter walks and in, steps into the house of this guy named Cornelius, definitely not a Jew. That name is definitely not a Jewish name, right? He steps in and he has an interaction with this guy named Cornelius and he realizes this is what Christ wanted all along, to mix, right? What, what he's saying here is this, that the church should have dirty hands. It's not about cleanliness anymore. It should, we should have dirty hands because dirty is the new holy, Think about the godly, godly people of the world that we celebrate. Mother Teresa, in the streets of Calcutta, her hands were always dirty, calloused hands. I'm pretty sure I shared this with you before, but um, there's a guy I heard who worked with Mother Teresa, and he basically said, when there's like a shipment of, of all these um, uh, donated shoes, used shoes, She's the first to run to the pile of shoes and she digs through them. She picks the ones that's messed up the most and she claims it as her own so that everybody else could have better shoes. And because of that, and she does this all the time, but because of that, her feet eventually got infected, got deformed, and she never complained about it because she understood that dirty is a new holy. We're trying so hard to, you know, like we have our own Christian brand of music and Christian t-shirts and Christian books and Christian, movies and you know, whatever Christian, right? And we, we do our best to separate ourselves from the world. Yes, in the temple model, in the Old Testament, that was definitely the deal. That was the big thing, right? But in the new world, the new world that God is creating, he's like, that's not what, it's, what we're about anymore. It's about, it's about getting in and getting your hands dirty. So for those people who are like, you know, taking pictures of their glamorous devotional time, you know, with a coffee and everything looks nice and puts it on Instagram or whatever, That's not what Jesus is about, right? (laughs) Jesus is also not about posting things like that online, but anyways, that's a different story. Okay, let's talk about the temple model. Temple model, clean is sacred. The Jesus model, dirty is sacred, okay? Dirty is sacred. Here's a verse to go with that. This is the very last words that Jesus said before he uh, went he went to heaven. He says, therefore, he's talking to the church, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. This is a big deal because in those days, The command was not to go into the world and make disciples of all nations. The command back then, the old temple model was, go therefore and make disciples of Israel, right? Your own people. And now it's like, no, I want you to go out and make disciples of people who are not like you, people who have different religious backgrounds. This is not just for certain groups of people, it's for all people now, right? And if you do that, surely I am with you always. With you always, let's go back. Okay, here we go, always, to the very end of the age. Jesus made it very clear. Dirty is a new holy. Get your hands dirty. Now, I'm not saying that all nations are dirty. I'm not saying that. The, the image here is, if your goal in Christianity is purity, making sure that you don't mix with people who aren't like you, then that's a temple model. Okay. So let's recap everything because we talked about the four things. Okay, here's the recap of the four things. The Jesus model is the church is a body, not an empire. Authority benefits the followers, not the leaders. Maturity is measured by love, not how holy or how religious you are. And holiness is getting your hands dirty, right? Now, the opposite of this is the temple model, which is this. The church is an empire, right? Authority benefits the leader. Maturity is measured by religiosity. Holiness is keeping hands clean. Now, if you look at the four here, you'll discover something. These four things contribute to us drawing lines. For example, church is an empire. What do empires and kingdoms do? They build walls to protect themselves. Nobody can come in because the walls are there. There's lines. Authority benefits the leader. For the sake of protecting the leader of all costs, we draw lines. Religiosity. When we say, like, hey, you get bonus points for being extra religious, right? It's all about following rules. And what do rules do? It draws lines. How many times did you sin? Nine times? Ooh, the line is at eight, so you're on the other side of the line. You can't come into, you know, this is a holy club. You're not holy enough, right? Religiosity draws lines. And the final one, if your job in Christianity is to keep your hands clean, in the first dirty person, somebody that you deem as unclean, walks in through the door, you're keeping your distance from that person, right? And because of this, because the church has become this, became the temple model, the church started to draw lines. And because of that, we created a us versus them mentality. It's the church versus the world, guys. You know, make sure that you don't mix with them, don't mingle with them, right? You know, for a long time in U.S. history, the church was the one that was instructing the world to behave. Hey, guys, you know, the church, you know, you want to be. You got to make sure you're behaving. But now, because we built this bubble around us, this wall around us, we're in a world now where the world is telling us to behave. And we keep telling everybody that we have the moral high ground. It's become an us versus them thing. And it was never meant to be that way. And because of that, the church has become unnecessarily unattractive. So, the question that I want you to go home and think about and ponder, or maybe just for the next five minutes, (laughs) I don't know how long you like to ponder on things, is this, what would our church look like if we lived according to the Jesus model truth? What if we lived as people who said, no, we are not an empire, we're a body. We're not here to draw lines We're here to invite. We're not here to protect the pastor because he's the holiest guy here. Oh, yeah, you know, no, right? We get bonus points for being religious. What if we dumped all that and we said, no, no, we're about relationships. We're about loving other people. The way we measure each other is by how well we love one another, how radically we can love one another. So what does that look like? What does church look like if we were to live according to these principles? Well, come next week because next week we're talking about the set church. You know, We've been looking at this word for a long time but I haven't really told you, you know, taught you guys anything about it. But the set church is a model that I believe that, that really uh, demonstrates what a church ought to look like if we were to follow the Jesus model versus, rather than the, 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 the temple model. So don't miss next week because we're going to talk about this. But for, the, for today, because we don't want to move too fast, imagine what our church would look like if you lived according to the four principles we talked about today. What would you change about this church? How would you participate differently in this church if you lived according to those four principles? What would you keep and what would you change about this church? These are some of the questions we're going to deal with next week. So don't miss next week. Amen? Amen. All right, let's pray.